0: i love it when you read to
1: me books can take us around the world they can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences and they can help us grow through their words stay tuned for people of the book with janice leibovitz
0: i am janice leibovitz and you are my people of the book And sorry, I have been away for the past couple of weeks. I've been visiting my mom in the UK. So unfortunately, an unplanned for break. So, but it was great to see her. I haven't been able to visit with her for two and a half years. Um, We did plan on a show last week, but unfortunately, the guest I was going to interview um, was unfortunately ill. So yeah, an unplanned four for two week break, but I am back and I'm thrilled to have my guest today, Anne Rapidas Breast, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me on the show, Janice. Such a pleasure. And of course, we're going to be chatting about your brand new book, which is When Irish Eyes Are Not Smiling. And I think that you are quite known. I know that that's it's possible that a lot of people have read your previous book that was quite some years ago, that was called Catastrophe. And I know that I read it. I I thought it was wonderful. Um, But I I know that, that, uh, you know, people might know you from that, but people also know you for the other work that you do, which is photography and genealogy.
1: Just tell me a bit about that. Well, I've been a photographer for about 41 years and that's professional. Before that, I always was busy with the camera. Since I was a child, my dad was always busy with the camera and he showed me, and I just loved taking pictures, loved capturing images of people. And then I still do it professionally, but I took a little bit of a break during COVID. I was nervous, you know, of mixing with too many people and having too many people in my studio, which is not really COVID compliant. So I've concentrated more on my genealogy. I'm doing I do family trees, family history. I also get birth certificates, uh, marriage certificates for people wanting Lithuanian passports. I write. I run my home, and I'm very active in my garden. So I'm busy, it. and so I you, enjoy you, it.
0: Yes, you do keep busy. And and your father, your late father's love of photography. I mean, it, it does come up in the book because this book basically and I mean I I can see where your whole genealogy family tree thing comes in because wow this book I mean I, I was reading the book and thinking this is incredible that you have so much detail and so much information about your family on both your mother and your father's side and the the photographs are just amazing and the fact that you have all these photographs and that you know who all the people are in the photographs is something incredibly special. Really, it's, it's, it's a gift. It's a gift to have, have all of this and to have all this information and to be able to pass that down to to you know the younger members of your family. I, I just think it's something so amazing. But as I said, this book is, is really like, uh, it's a memoir. Am I correct? to call it that.
1: Yes, it is it is a memoir because it is about me and it's about my life and about my opinions. I have expressed a lot of opinions. You
0: have expressed a lot of opinions. But what I absolutely love, and obviously we're going to go into it in so much more detail during the show, is that it's so honest and it's really, it's your life laid bare, which is very brave because you express absolute highs and lows, and people often are very willing to share the highs of their lives with readers, but are often not really willing to share the lows. And you've shared all of it. Um, you, you've shared, I mean, from, from the time that you are a very small child, um, actually even before you shared the history, you know, a lot of the history of Ireland, which, which, which is the land of your birth a land that you clearly love and still love it's it's quite obvious i mean even though you do love south africa and um, which you've spent much more many more years in than you've spent in ireland
1: mm-hmm.
0: i, I um, as i told you a little bit earlier i mean i have I, I love ireland i have an affinity towards it and i don't know why but i've always felt that way but I, I discovered some very interesting things about Ireland that I didn't know. Um, but you, you've you started this book from when you were very small and you
1: were very lucky to have memories from when you were extremely young. Yes, I have a lot of memories. I also have a photographic memory and I can picture everybody. I can picture, I remember how my father walked I remember every little detail about so many people in Ireland, people I used to see in the street that I knew, if they had a mole, um, if they got a cat, tooth, I, I would notice, I remember things. It's just something in my head. And I, I loved growing up uh, as a child. I loved Ireland. I loved my family. I loved them. And I think that I wanted my children to know more about my father. I didn't want him to just be a picture on the wall. You know, they mean they, they call him granny's husband. And I wanted them to be, I wanted to bring my family to life for, for my children. Also, I feel that I wanted my brother, who was too young to remember my dad, I wanted him to know that my dad was actually a fun-loving, happy person before the Problem, you know. Yes. I want to say now. Yes,
0: yeah. We don't want. We don't want to give too well, much away. Yes,
1: okay. and he has no memory. He was too young, and I wanted him. I've often written him little things because he would be curious. You know, my brother's Robert Lapidus. Uh, a lot of people know him, and I would write him stories. And then I, when I was writing the book, I thought, you know, I'm going to make. Put more detail in so my brother can also know the father that he only knew from a certain point in yeah. his life. So that was one of the reasons, not that you asked me that yet, but you're probably coming to it. Why did I write the book? And it's... it's It's um, coming to fruition for me because my children, Angela, my daughter, has read the book and loved it. And my son, Gregory, is reading the book and loving it. And he's asking me questions. So everything I want to achieve insofar as my family are concerned, I feel I have achieved. And people overseas, people, some I know, some I don't know, are I must say they're loving the book and I'm not blowing my own trumpet I'm, I would not call myself a good writer but there's something about the way I write that draws people in because I write the way I speak and people like that I'm not a fancy writer I don't use you know fancy yes, words I you're right, yeah. it's, it's
0: very it's very down you to know, it. it's very relatable
1: So people like it and I I enjoy. It's like taking a good photograph of somebody and giving it to them and seeing how much they enjoy it. If I feel that I'm writing something and somebody's relating to it and enjoying what I'm saying, then I've done what I wanted to do.
0: So amazing. We are obviously, like you say, going to check more about all of this when we get back. I love it
1: when you... This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz.
0: You are listening to People of the Book, and today I am chatting to Anne Lapidus-Brest about her book, When Irish Eyes Are Not Smiling. And before the break, we were chatting about the reasons why Anne has written this book, and how so far she's achieved everything she wanted to with regards to the reasons she wrote it for her family and for her for her children and for her brother who is quite a bit younger than her and ha- who has different memories than the ones that Anne has specifically about their father. But but what I want to start off with by saying is that it's strange to think and you start off talking about Ireland in the eighteen hundreds, which um obviously you were not there. It's strange to think when when one thinks of Ireland today being the extremely Catholic country that it is, and when you think of its very recent past and how the Catholic Church had such control over Ireland and its laws and so much of, of what happens there, it is very strange to think that in the 1800s, the Catholics were, in fact, persecuted by the Protestants. I didn't know that. I had just yes. presumed it to always be
1: a Catholic no. country. No, in, in very, very, very early times, the Protestants—they were the ones in charge—and the Catholics had restrictions, um, and they weren't allowed to do this, and they weren't allowed to work here, and they weren't allowed. To, they were very much in the minority. They were on the back burner, and the Protestants—they were the ones who ruled the roost, and. When and obviously, in my day, it was all Catholic, which we learned at yeah. school. I remember, you know, there's the a lot of Protestants still in Ireland. I went to a Protestant yes. school to start off with. And um, you were mentioning about the 1880s and the, the Jewish community going over. I think you were getting to that point. In my yeah, time. yeah, it's, <laughs> it's so
0: interesting because, I mean, throughout the book, I mean, there is an underlying theme throughout the book. And obviously once, I mean, and and before your family even moves to South Africa, there is mention of what is happening in South Africa prior to 1975 prior to to everything that happens here prior to to apartheid but there is a an underlying theme throughout the book of I'm not going to call it persecution per se but I, I'm going to talk about um I'd like to call it discrimination because you know it starts off with this this discrimination of the Catholics by the Protestants and then the throughout the book i mean then then there's the whole thing with the troubles i mean with between the protestants and the catholics and you you do start to mention when when that really starts to happen you throw in throughout the book of um well-known incidents that happened during that time in ireland that was just ongoing but there were standout incidents that occurred during that time that you mention. but just getting back to your actual story i love the way you've written as you say you write as you speak which is what makes the book so relatable and as you say you think that's why people enjoy it so much but I love the way that you have actually written in. The way people read it is, you know, you're thinking it in your head and it's with the pronunciation thrown in and it's just, it's fantastic. It's with the Irish pronunciation, the Yiddish pronunciation. It's all there. It's the way your family spoke. It's the way the Irish speak. It's all in there and that's what makes it so readable. But going back to your close family. And that was how you, you spent your, your very young years. Your grandparents' house, your father's parents, the photographs in your, your grandparents' house. You mentioned there was one specific photograph of a little boy who you just assumed was your uncle and you never mentioned yes. it, you never asked about it. Tell me about that.
1: Well, that was actually my mother's. I think we're talking about my mother's family house. And oh gosh, my mother had a little brother. Well, he was nine. He was older than her, and. I also don't want to say anything because, you know, I don't want to spoil the book, but there was a picture of him in the back room, we called it. The back room was like a spare room, like a dining room, I suppose you'd call it here. And I asked my grandma once, who's the little boy? I thought it was my uncle, my Uncle Morris, my mother's youngest brother. And my grandma was very emotional. And she said, Lovey, just ask your mammy. Mamela, go and ask your mammy. And she was crying. And I... God, what, what have I done? I've upset grandma. And then later on, when I was about 12, I asked my mother about the about the little boy and she told me the story. But things weren't spoken about then. And because I asked my grandma and my other grandma, my father, my granny, my father's mother, also issues with small children. Yes. And being a little child, I asked and also... They didn't want to talk about it. It's different today. It really and they, they and more. they didn't
0: want to talk about it in front of the children because whenever there was a problem, it was always like not for the children's ears. Yes. It's, it's not you know, like, not today, like you see. say, that, that everything is spoken about and it's all out in the open. You know, it was very Correct. much, you know, the children was go play outside and we'll talk inside. We're having, you know, we're chatting about it around the dining room table and you go play outside. But you mentioned something before, and also one of the reasons you wrote the book was that there was very much a before and after, and your father was very much like one person before, and then there was a, an incident, and he became a different person. How many years are there
1: between you and your brother? My maths is shocking. Three and a half. So I was five. Yes. I was about five and a bit, so my brother would be about... I can't add. Yeah, I will say. Three and a half from five.
0: (laughs) So he did not remember your father being that happy, jolly person that you remembered. Isn't it true, though, that so often siblings have completely different memories of growing up and completely different memories of the same incident or of the same thing? Or they'll have completely, you know, if you talk about, Oh, we grew up like this and it was like that. And, you know, this is how we were when we were. And and a sibling will say something totally different. Their experience is totally different. Correct.
1: And it's also how they see things. And I will mention at this point, my cousin Joe Briscoe and his father was uh, Robert Briscoe. He was the Jewish Lord Mayor in Ireland or Dublin, I can't remember. Uh Dublin. And Joe always said that his father said, everybody remembers things differently. It doesn't I mean somebody's lying I or making we perceive things differently. And my brother just didn't, he was too young. You know, it's not like he was eight or nine. And I said, Well, it was like this. He doesn't have the memory. He was a, a baby. Toddler, and I wanted him to know and um, whenever he wanted to know things he always used to ask me because I'm the older sister and I would remember and I just think it's important also for my children and also for my Irish friends because my Irish friends all remembered my dad you know they're all on the phone and it's wonderful for me when they phone me from Ireland because I love talking about him and in South Africa very very few people really knew him he died two years after we got here so my South African friends, other than Gilda Goldblatt, who's in the book, one or two people, Jenny, who's in the book, she remembers him, Gilda remembers him, but most people, and Michael Golding, another friend from my next-door neighbour, but most of my South African friends have no, they don't know my dad, and in Ireland, they all do, they remember him. And I like talking about him. I love it. I kind of live in the past, but I love it.
0: <laughs> also, also... Um... You you also said that your brother is, you know he doesn't he doesn't ask questions he doesn't argue if he's told to do something he does is he still like that?
1: He was a wonderful child. I always used to say to my man, Robert is the next giver in the family, and she used to laugh. <laughs> but he was very very good. He was as as my mother used to say, he's as good as gold. As he was a gold. very. Yeah, and he was good to, uh, yes, a good son, a good father, a good husband, a good grandfather. Goes with the flow, you know, I have to say that. Um, but that's how he was as a child. He was um, just went along with 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 everything and didn't ask questions where I used to ask. I wanted to know, but why, but why, but why? Robert didn't. He just went along, he was, did what he was told, and that was it. Look, he's a man now, I mean, he's 70-something. Well, I'm, I'm 76 so he's three years, two and a half years younger than me. So it makes him what, 73 and a bit. And he's a man, it's different, but yeah. as a young boy, that's how he was.
0: Very well behaved. Obviously, there is a lot more to chat about. I'm chatting to Anne Lapita's breast today. We're talking about her new book, When Irish Eyes Are Not Smiling.
1: I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz.
0: You are listening to People of the Book. I'm Janice Leibovitz, and today I'm chatting to Anne lapidus breast about her new book, When Irish Eyes Are Not Smiling, which is basically her memoir. It's a story about her life from when she was very young in Ireland until today, until now-ish. Yes, yes, now. As I said, you write so beautifully about your very young years when you were young and growing up in Ireland it's really about loving family and this warm family that you you grew up with and you're surrounded by just warmth and love and loads of family coming and going and it's just really incredible and then you get told you're moving to South Africa and everyone tells you not to move to South Africa. And all your friends are telling you, no, it's an awful place and you shouldn't be moving there. And, you know, don't go. But, you know, you had family here already and you did have links to South Africa. You had ties. Your mother had been for a visit. You you know, she'd already been out here. And move to South Africa, you did, um, with your family. And your father came out first to check out the lay of the land and set things up. My father did the same. We also moved to South Africa. I was uh, quite a bit younger than you were when you moved. But yeah, my father also came out first. Your father came out first. And then you came out with your mom and your brother. And you had to get used to all these South Africanisms (laughs) and wanting to blend in and getting used to all the different, you know everything was different. You spoke differently. You, you sounded different. You looked different. You said things differently. (laughs) Talk to me about that experience.
1: You know, when I think at my age and even my brother's age, my brother said that he, he did everything possible to take on a South African accent as quickly as he could because He wanted to be the same. I didn't quite master the South African accent, but I did try. And I got teased a lot. And, you know, if this had happened in Ireland, I was a big fish in a small pond and I had the confidence and I would have just let them have it. But I was a stranger and very intimidated, very homesick. I didn't have a lot of friends and I was bullied i I was bullied at uh, bernardo park and i felt embarrassed that i said things differently i remember somebody two girls and they i'm friendly with them today and they said to me what are you knitting and i I said a a jersey was a jersey a cardigan i think i said and they imitated, and i was so embarrassed that i had used that word i felt like my face went red Today, it doesn't bother me if people say you speak differently. I don't care because I've got the confidence. But then I was very embarrassed and I felt shenzah. And I did everything I could to try and use South African expressions and to fit in. And it took me a while. And it was only after that incident with that bully at school when I shamed her. Um, Again, I won't mention it. And then all of a sudden, I went up in everybody's estimation. You know, a small thing. And all of a sudden I was a hero at school and that gave me a lot of confidence. And my friend, Gilda Goldblatt, um, who I'm still friendly with, and Jenny, who I'm still friendly with, they became my, my best friends at school. And then I suddenly became more used to the life here and I started making friends. I got more confidence. I didn't care about my accent or how I looked, fixed my hair um, changed my clothes you know, to fit in with the more South African look today, people overseas or here or wherever you are they all dress the same, it's a universal way of dressing, yeah. but in those days I stood out as as like an eight-lander, you know yeah. you could see that I was foreign yeah, and they called you an you eight-lander know? it was horrible, but I could, look, after a couple of years, all that bullying and everything was gone, but it was I was miserable Janice here miserable,
0: yeah, and I mean our Remember, my mother told me that when I first started going to school here, apparently I used to come home and I used to start talking in this very strong South African accent. And I don't remember that. But yeah, i from? Uh, from England. Are you English?
1: Mm. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. You're very South African. I mean, oh, I was
0: entirely, basically, I mean, entirely schooled here. So I mean, I've never lived here for most of my life. But um, she said, you know, it's that wanting to fit in. You don't want to stand hmm. out. You want to fit in. You don't want to be an outlander, okay. do you? (laughs) yeah I mean I don't remember that at all so um, you know in South Africa we were turning a blind eye to what the police were doing but it wasn't only in South Africa and like I said in the beginning you know this theme runs through the book this discrimination theme you know throughout uh, this whole the whole Catholic issue with the church and and the Magdalene laundries and everything the Irish claimed not to know anything they said they didn't know about it mm-hmm. and throughout the Holocaust the Germans came not to know what was going on and you know and you know let's be honest it still happens it's happening it happens everywhere all the time. So, of course it does Yeah, it really does And and also discrimination The discrimination that was happening in, in South Africa It was happening in other places as well It was still happening in Ireland It was happening in the American South Yes,
1: very much so
0: As we kept saying, as, as they say everywhere South Africa gave it a name That was why everyone pointed fingers at us And said, well, South Africa was the poster child For what was wrong in, in with everything in the world You know, why we had sanctions and why everything was so terrible. Talk me through what, I mean, I know that that you noticed it. And then as you settled into life here, you didn't notice it as much. Talk to me yes. about that.
1: That's correct. And it always made me feel guilty. You got used to it. And that is, I hate to actually admit to that, but you I did get used to the system. It seemed to me that I was surrounded by white people all the time. And that was the word. And unless I happened to read something in the paper or hear something specifically on the news, I didn't think about it the way I had in the beginning. I think it's with anything that you get used to, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, you get used to it. And this, I didn't forget about it, but it made me guilty. How could I like life in South Africa? How could I be happy in this country when it did the most unspeakable things to people who were not white people? And I think that they they took away their dignity and their honor. I mean, what, they, what it did, and I don't want to go into the politics. I'm not a political person, but from an emotional point of view, It was a terrible, terrible, terrible thing that was done to non-white people of this country. And my friend Adelaide Abrams, that's Jenny's sister, said, if you hear something long enough, you start to believe it. And she meant, you know, she kept hearing she's a second class citizen, second class citizen. And she said, if you hear it long enough, you start to believe it. It's like at school, I was told Anne Lapidus, you'll never amount to anything. And you think, I'm stupid, I'm no good, I'm different. This was at primary school, not in high school. And my teacher made me feel like a dum-dum. And I said to her in the book, you're wrong. I addressed her, she's long dead, but I addressed her and I said what I wanted to say. I did amount to something. How can teachers, how can anybody make somebody feel inferior? But people do. And that's why I also wrote about abuse. In the book, and apartheid was abuse. You mentioned
0: specifically in the book about how disturbing it, it is and disturbing it was that so often you would see in the newspapers and in the media visuals of people being evicted from their homes. There was the Group Areas Act and areas were, you know, reclassified and people were relocated. And you used to see these heartbreaking pictures of people
1: mm-hmm.
0: sitting on pavements with all their belongings around them. Mm-hmm. Literally mm-hmm. with nowhere to go. I mean it's 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 all very well reclassifying areas and saying, well, you have to leave now. But where were they supposed to go? The truth is that this is still happening today in South Africa. People are being removed and evicted from buildings because, you know, we talk about hijacked cars, but there are hijacked buildings because people literally have nowhere to live. There are empty buildings and people are living there, but then they are removed. But where are they supposed
1: to go? If I'm not mistaken, I think that what I was referring to in the book was when people left what was called Sapphire Town and they went, they, they called it Triumph. I don't know where they went. I think it was before my time. And before my time living in South Africa, And I was actually discussing this with Gilda Goldblatt the other day when people were evicted. And she said they were just thrown out, no compensation. I said, but where were, I asked her the same question, Gilda, where were they supposed to go? I mean, where do you go? You've got possessions, you've got bedding, you've got clothing. And I can't believe people did it. And they they just took them out of their homes. I think, or I like to think, that they went, they, they housed them somewhere else, the Sophia Town people. They did the same with District 6. I don't know where they went. Where did they go? I don't know, but in Ireland, I remember, sorry to run from one country to the next, but in Ireland, there were slums that I mentioned in my book, Charlemagne Street, and yes. when I used to go to Schul on yes. North, we passed them. And those people were taken out of those slums, but they were rehoused, but they weren't happy. They were given better homes with running water and proper windows and decent homes. They they were not one bit happy, and they wanted to go back to Charlemagne Street. I think people get attached to their home and they don't want to be kicked out. Even if they decide to move, that's one thing. But to be taken out and evicted and sent somewhere else that the government, whether it's Ireland or here or whatever country, decides for you. It's not what you want. And it's an invasion of your privacy and of your life. And... I actually want to go into it. Taka, where did the people go? I, the, the pictures were shocking. They were on. They were bewildered, like uh, standing there on the pavement with their little meager belongings. It was terrible.
0: I don't think. I mean, I agree with you. It's an invasion of their lives, an invasion of privacy. But more than that, it's the removal of personal choice
1: yeah well that that's what i said if yeah. you decide to go it's one thing but when you're told you're going here you're going there and you see in this country it was in ireland it was done because of poverty you know these people were it was the slums and they were trying to clean up so they got them out and gave them better homes in this country it was a uh, color it was a uh, racist and color Orientated why they did it.
0: And as you say, that it's not like they removed them to somewhere else. They simply removed them. It wasn't like there was a plan. We'll take you from here and put you over there. It was just we're taking you from here. And that was it. But like we said, it wasn't only here. It was just that stuck a name tag on it. Well, look,
1: in in America, I mean, and look, I'm not a political person, but I will say this. It has always annoyed me that people who are not South African have criticized South Africa when they themselves have done the same thing. I mean... The Americans went in, they annihilated the Native Americans or Red Indians, as they call them then. What happened to the the Maori? I mean, the Aborigines. People went in and white people went in and took over and got rid, conveniently got rid of the natural inhabitant of the country. And it's it's a terrible thing, you know, and and then they criticized South Africa uh, and they were right to. But it was a little bit like the pot calling the cattle black because they did this very, very, very same thing. No difference.
0: Let's not forget that the Native Americans were also allocated certain areas to live. They were put into mm. reserves. Yes. A reserve, a township. It's the same thing. You allocated a separate area that... We were the baddies because, as I say, we stuck a label on it and we gave it a name. Like I said, we're going backwards and forwards here because I picked up specific things from the book that that just stuck out to me a lot. You mentioned Robert's Bar Mitzvah. (laughs) Yes. You mentioned people who were there and you said it was such a beautiful Simcha people came from, Ireland, people came from overseas and there were people there. And two names just stuck out. To me, because they I recognize them. It was Percy Suntup and Favi Simonovitz, And I have to <laughs> ask you. <laughs> um, do you ever, do you know we never knew why he was called Favi? Did you know why he was
1: called Favi? We knew him as because sure, his name was Fivela. Why was it Favula? Favula? Because it's Yiddish for Oh, we just
0: for Yiddish. <laughs> I mean, we knew people called him Favi, but but um, we
1: called him Fivey. And, you know, the funny thing is I've got a very good friend. She also makes an appearance in the book, Linda Buzansky. Linda Buzanski's cousin, I think it was, married Simon Simonovitz. So Linda knew Miss Philip. I knew Miss Fivey. I don't even think I knew his English name. So she said to me one day, well, we're going to visit my cousin. She's getting engaged to a lovely guy called Philip. So Philip, Philip, Philip. Anyway, we arrive at the house and there the cousin is. And I said, oh, God, that's Fivey. I mean, <laughs> we knew the same person, but with a different name. And um, yeah, a lot of people call him Philip. But to well, me, we he's first five knew five him as and Philip and Percy, then like,
0: yeah, like luck like happened there. We then had a really good friend and she also knew him as Fivey. And we were like, well, why is he Fivey? But yeah, we, we just, I just remembered him well from Waverly Shaw. And name. Percy, we're, we're, Percy, Percy, I just to speak to Percy. Percy, I think my husband knows Percy, and the name's very familiar to me. It's, it's, I, I just know the name, and I, I don't know yeah, why. Bruce. You know when you just know that you know people. Well, that that name just, just knew him. I just, yeah, I just knew that. Um, like I keep saying, what I love specifically about this book, among many many things, but the one thing I adore is the photographs. These photographs are just something special, that you have the photographs is one thing. I mean, we all have tons and tons of photographs. People lose them over the years. People pass away. People, I don't know, get rid of them. I don't know what they do. But the fact that you know who all these people are Mm. in all these (laughs) photographs is Mm. just something unbelievably special. And I think that that is just amazing. But we are going to Wrap up shortly. We're going to come back and we're going to. There's just one or two more things that need to be mentioned and then we're going to wrap up.
1: I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz.
0: I'm Janice Liebowitz and you're listening to People of the Book. And my guest today is Anne Lapidus brest We are talking about her new book, When Irish Eyes Are Not Smiling. Before I forget, Anne, where can people get the book? Because, I mean, really, people need to read this book. I'm just, I mean, obviously, people need to read the book. I love the book. But, you know, we want people to buy the book. Where can they get this book?
1: It's in all major stores. I know it's sold out of a few places already, but um, my publicist is busy uh, restocking. It's an exclusive reader's warehouse in Norwood. Clark's in Cape Town, they're sold out. Wordsworth, I think they call it in C I'm not 100% sure, but most of the exclusive books have it. And of course, it's on Amazon.com. It's an ebook oh, as brilliant. well. So it's all over the place.
0: That is excellent. So lots of options for people to buy this book. Yes. So, yeah. right, no excuses. From a very, very young age, and I mean, I'm not going to... Give you know we don't want to give any spoilers. We don't want to say you know where it comes from, how it comes from. I mean you know usually we don't know where these things come from. You suffered from panic attacks and anxiety. Mm-hmm. I mean many people have said to you it's all in your head and you know mm-hmm. it doesn't exist. I mean I don't agree with that. I think it's a very real thing. And I mean you know you live with it. You know it's a real thing. Yes. But talk me through how that must have changed and evolved from being a young child, living with that, and how it has changed over the years.
1: As a kid, you know, I mean, I've had anxiety since I was five or six, since this incident, and I hid it. I didn't let people see it. I was always the class clown. I was always a happy little kid, lots of friends. And by the time I got to about 11 or 12, I realized I was different. And I just didn't let people see what was going on. I was ashamed and in those days it was no such thing as OT you didn't have social workers and there was one psychologist in Dublin and everybody said he was a nutter we just didn't go to psychology it was unheard of it was only for mad people when I was about 16 17 it was 17, 18 it was particularly bad it's come and gone but I coped because I didn't want to be seen as like a, a weakling or pathetic I was in there with the best of them, and I was doing everything, and I was, except going in lifts. I wouldn't go in a lift. But I made a joke of it, and I said, I'm keeping fit, and I'm going up the stairs. And then when I got much older, I thought, well, if you don't like it, too bad. That's the way I am. I mean, somebody said to me something like rubbish. He said it in other words, but he said, rubbish, nonsense, all in your head. Get over it. Pull yourself together. Well, I mean, if I could pull myself together, Janice, I would, you can't. You, I cannot go on a lift. And there's lots of things I can't do, but I like, I will do them. So, I mean, I walk up the stairs because I won't say to a client, I'm not coming to take a picture because you're on the 10th floor. I'll send up my cameras and I'll walk up. And I nice. make arrangements that they open the door at the top so I don't get stuck in the stairwell. You know, it's got to be planned. And I plan my day. And I plan uh, things that I've got to do because I don't want to just not do things. So I've never been on the top of the Empire State Building. There's lots of things I haven't done. I don't care. You've
0: lived a very full and rich life without all. Hundred
1: percent. And so I don't. I don't live in Japan or New York. I don't have to go in a lift. I'm. There's plans around it, and I do plan around it. And anxiety is terrible. And when I'm having a, an anxious day, it's not fun. But I've learned how to cope and I've learned most importantly, it goes away, comes back, but it it goes away. I don't have to sit and live every day in a black hole. I know it goes. And I have some kindred spirits, which is also why I wrote the book. You know, a lot of people have related to what I've said and they phoned me and they said, really, do you also have this? Do you also have that? I said, yes, yes. And we're kindred spirits. And it's it's a lovely feeling that people know they're not alone. And I kind of know. I think I know why I'm anxious. Although I'm not saying it wasn't in my family as well. There is a certain amount of anxiety in my mom's family and in my dad's family. But in my case, I don't know. I, you know, Gilda once said to me, "If that hadn't happened, would you be normal?" <laughs> and I said, "I, I don't know, Gilda. I don't know if I would be normal. You know, I, maybe I would, and maybe I would something." I'll never know but I don't care I mean Gilda can speak to me like that because she's one of my closest friends and my other very close friend is Carol Zimmerman I want to give her a little shout out she's very grounding and she's very good for me and she understands all the things with the lift and we went somewhere the other day and I didn't want to go in, in the parking underground in the parking no no Carol I've got to get I've got to. she had Annie you're with me I said Carol stop the car let me out and she did, no questions, as she understands. And people who don't understand, well, I rest my case. You, you, you have to understand. It's like if somebody has diabetes and they can't eat this or they can't eat you, you have to understand. You can't oh, go one. have a little bit. They can't. My anxiety is, is a problem in a lot of ways. And I don't like when people say, oh, i hold your hand in the lift. They don't understand. And I want to make people aware in the book. It is—it's a very real thing. It is not psychosomatic. It is Absolutely. real. Absolutely. It is no, real. And, it is real. But it is surmountable and culpable. And you have to laugh at it. I, I was discussing with my son last night because I'm busy with another couple of books. And I was discussing an incident where I was with him in America. We were uh, walking up Runyon Canyon. And all of a sudden, I was on my hands and knees. I said, Greg, Greg, I'm going to fall off. And he laughed, you know, at the time. And But he helped me. He understood. He said, Mom, you're not going to fall off. Three cars could drive up. Here. No, no, I'm going to fall. Off. I was clinging onto the side of the mountain, but he understood. And that I need people to understand, not say, oh, you're a lunatic, mom, you're crazy. You know, what are you talking about? He understood. And when I said, he said three cars, and yes, three cars could have driven up. I was nowhere near the edge. And when I explained... He got it, and that's yeah. what I. And otherwise, I can't be bothered. If people are abusive to me about my anxiety,
0: but you went, you 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 went to a support group and you got help, and you yes, like you say, I, you you found ways to to cope with it and ways to live with it. And as you say, you know when it's coming, and you know that it goes.
1: Yes, and. You have to cope. I went to a support group years ago because my mother worked out what was wrong with me after a huge panic attack in Israel. And she found it in Fair Lady magazine and she told me to go and I went. And there were many thousands of people at the Santa Lab and I couldn't believe it. You know, I thought it was just me or yeah. a few of us. You know, it's, it's good to have support, whatever it is, one needs support groups. And it's good to know you're not alone.
0: Absolutely. That's the whole thing but if but if someone is looking for um, a companion to go up the burj khalifa you're not it uh, so i just
1: repeat that if someone's looking somebody... for a
0: companion to go up the burj khalifa in dubai
1: uh, you're not it <laughs> no won't be me definitely not me and I would never go up. What's that mountain? They all go up. Um, not Mount Everest. There's another one here in Kilimanjaro. Africa. Yes. No, <laughs> not for me. No, they mustn't come looking for you. No, but, no, but, no. But you can do lots of other stuff. So. Yes, that, I was just going to say that, as I always say, but I've got my good points. Because if somebody, people are quick to criticize and I say, yeah, but I've got my good points.
0: And there are many, many of those. And one of them is that you have written this marvelous book which thank is you so much. really it's just fabulous it's when Irish eyes are not smiling and it is written by this wonderful lady Anne Lapidus Breast it's been a pleasure chatting to you today thank you so much for your time
1: oh you're so welcome it was, you made me so relaxed thank you so so much for that
0: it is such a pleasure and to you my darling listener once again take care of yourself take care of each other As I always say, I'm not sure about the mask thing. Wear it, don't wear it. I'm not sure what, what the whole story is. Whatever you do, until next time, read a book.